exegesis. That's the portion of the course that uh, we are in, and we are just beginning the observational stage. And just to remind you, uh, what we are doing is we are concentrating on these particular areas. When you actually get into a biblical text, you move back and forth from observations, you come up with preliminary conclusions, then you make more observations, you might revise those, or you make other conclusions. So you'll go back and forth. But for now, in order to understand what observation is all about, we need to isolate it and separate it out. So that's what we're doing. And we should complete that in this session, not this hour, but this session. And then we'll move into the stage of interpretation. So observing, we're trying to take notice of every little detail in the biblical text. We don't want to overlook even punctuation. And we're doing more than just seeing words on a page or sentences. What we're attempting to do is to perceive. We're looking for certain things. We're attempting to lay a groundwork, a foundation for good interpretation. So we're spending a lot of time on observation, and this is what you want to do in practice as well. Spend more time in observation, and then your interpretation will come naturally. So last time, we, or the last several times, we looked at terms. These are the basic building blocks of language. So terms are an important area of observation. And it's not just the meanings of individual words, but also how they are used in particular contexts. Are they used as nouns? Are they used as subjects of sentences? Are they verbs? So those are terms. Last time we spent some time looking at structure. And I mentioned that structure is defined as relationships in terms of language, relationships of all of the parts of language, how all of the parts relate to one another. Structure can be as simple as two words side by side that are in a relationship with one another. So when you think of structure, it doesn't have to be elaborate. It can be just two words. Jesus wept. Complete sentence. Independent clause. Two words. Subject and verb. Actually occurs in Scripture. Jesus wept. It's a whole idea, a thought, that has all of the components of a sentence. So you have structure. So you have just two words, but you have two words in relationship with one another. Jesus, subject of the sentence, wept the action of Jesus. That's a real verse in the Bible. So we won't assign that one because I think that's pretty easy. But if you were to break it down, you have a subject and a verb. That's structure. Most of the sentences are not that simple. In fact, in epistolary literature, and particularly Paul, we have very, very complex sentences where it's going to take some thought and some work to analyze the structure. But we're not at that stage yet. We're not analyzing it yet. We're just observing the structure that can be observed. So we spent some time looking at it, and we'll pick up at that point today. We mentioned that there are two major areas of structure, grammatical structure. That's within a sentence, how all of the parts of a sentence relate to one another. Just like the simple one, Jesus wept. Grammatically, I analyze it for you, subject and verb there. That deals with syntactical relationships. Grammatical relationships. The next or the second type of structure is literary structure. This is very, very broad. Now, literary structure can include within a sentence as well, but it primarily refers to that outside of a sentence. Literary structure. And we'll spend a lot of time looking at this area. 
These are literary relationships. How sentences fit together and work together, how paragraphs fit together, how all of the structural units fit together and work together to communicate. Literary structure. You said it's a relationship outside of a paragraph, did you say? Sentence. Outside of a sentence. But it can include elements of within a sentence. Whereas grammatical is primarily within a sentence. Let's talk about structural units. I've already mentioned a a few of them. And let's take a whole book as an example to illustrate structural units. Let's take the book of Romans. The book of Romans breaks down quite commonly in this little chart that I've given you into these structural units, and we'll talk about each of them individually. We've already talked about the structural unit of division. In other words, these are the main parts of any book. That's the highest level of structural unit called the division. In the book of Romans, you could identify at least three divisions from chapters 1 to the end of chapter 8, chapter 9 to the end of chapter 11, and from chapter 12 to the end of the book. Three major divisions of the book of Romans. Now, because of the length of the introduction and the length of the conclusion, uh, you could look at them as divisions in themselves. Because in the book of Romans, they are the longest introductions and conclusions than any of Paul's writings. And if that's the case, then you would break down Romans. That's why I made this blue line a little smaller than these other blue lines. But you could consider them divisions as well. So if you say Romans has five divisions and you're isolating the introduction and the conclusion as individual divisions, then that would be a good observation. Or you could combine the introduction with the first division and make it at the level of a subdivision. And the same with the with the conclusion included in the third division, and it would be the last subdivision of the book. Either way works. So your your big structural unit is the division. When you did the book study, you were looking for those major divisional units of the book. After divisions, you have subdivisions. So now each subdivision would be divided, and in the book of Romans, the first subdivision would include chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, After the introduction, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. That would be your first subdivision from this point to this point. And then chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 5, would be your second subdivision. And then 6-1 through the end of chapter 8, your next subdivision. And then subdivisions, the smaller unit, would be sections. And usually uh, Romans would be divided chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of chapter 1 as the first section of this second subdivision. And then chapter, all of chapter 2 as the, the second one, and 3 to verse 20. Chapter 3, 1 to verse 20, the third one. See that? Structural units. And if you want Roman numerals, if you want to use Roman numerals, that's in chart form. This is chart form, so you can visually see. But if you're outlining, your Roman numerals would be your divisions. First major division... Uh, chapter 1 to chapter 8. And what do you have after the division level in outlining? Well, yeah, but what's the next structural unit? Subdivision. Subdivision, so that would be your A level, capital A level, subdivision. And if you're looking at the first, the introduction there, that'd be the first 17 verses as your first subdivision. Then you have another subdivision from chapter 1, 18 through 3, 20. And then after subdivision, your 1, 2, 3 is what? Sections. First section would be chapter 1, 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 32. And then after sections, 
I didn't identify it on the chart. But some longer books, you might have subsections, or some people even identify segments in longer books. Uh, the Book of Romans probably doesn't have that, because it, the next structural unit in the Book of Romans is the paragraph. So each of these sections have at least one, and usually more than one paragraph. And I'm going to talk a little bit about paragraphs some more in a moment, so hold your questions. First paragraph in the first section, so this is little a, would be 18 through 23. Now these vary. The paragraph breakdowns vary from translation to translation. And I would just suggest start with the translation you're using. And if you're you're using a study Bible, they'll be close. They'll vary a little bit. Some of them are a little tighter. Some of them combine. And then after a paragraph, what's within a paragraph? You can figure this one out. What's the next structural unit? Sentence. That would be one half a paren. And in this case, the first sentence is verse 18 and 19. And within sentences, clauses. So a half a parentheses would be your clauses. First clause is verse 18a, and then you can uh, even break up clauses as well if you keep outlining. Make sense? These are your major structural units. Each of these has a relationship to everything else in the book. That's why when you do a book study, you're attempting to find out these major divisions. Major divisions. Because everything else fits in somehow to these divisional breakdowns. And then so also as you get more detail. So structural units, let's illustrate it from a real passage here in Romans. Here's a paragraph. Verses 16 and 17 compose a paragraph within the book of Romans. And you have a new Subdivision beginning in verse 18, if you include the introduction as part of the first division. And that paragraph will run, I've got it in red, all the way to verse 20, the end of 23. And 24 starts a new paragraph. And what did we say is the first sentence? Now the next thing is you want to isolate the sentences within a paragraph. Where's the first sentence end? This is basic stuff. This is easy stuff. But this will give you lots of data when it comes to interpretation. And it'll, it'll set the framework for your interpretation. First sentence, just read it. For the wrath of God is from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. In unrighteousness, uh, that's not a period, that's a comma, so it doesn't end there. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, semicolon, well, that's not a period, so it doesn't end there. For God made it evident to them, period. There it is. That's what you wanted to start with. Where does the sentence begin? Where does the sentence end? This is your third grade grammar. This is where I got derailed. (laughs) I wasn't able to recover for another two decades. (laughs) Go ahead, Mark. Your... But a description of what you just said was the first sentence starts with, uh, the first sentence in the section starts with four and ends with them two verses later. Is that what you're, is that what you're looking for for a description? You're looking for a complete sentence. Observation and observation yeah. comes down to just yeah. saying just that. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, the sentence begins in verse 18 and runs all the way through verse 19. Observation. Now, uh, now you want to work with this sentence. Let, let's say this is your specific context. This is what you are studying. You're studying this paragraph. Now you want to begin by looking at that first sentence because that is a unit of thought. That is a unit of thought. And now you want to break it down into what? Clauses. So, Who wants to identify the first independent or an independent clause? I don't know if it's the first or not until we get into it. Verse 18. 
Okay, all of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodly and righteous men who say... Oops, not quite. I disagree with you. I think this is the first independent clause. Right here, men. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Right there. Because this begins, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness is a subordinate clause in itself. Does that make sense? See that? Did you make that observation? So we have a subordinate clause here, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That would be a dependent clause. And it's telling us something about what? It's modifying something. It's modifying who these guys are, these unrighteous guys. Who are those men? They are these who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we have an independent clause, and then we have a dependent clause, and since we still have a sentence here, now in verse 19, what is this? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, semicolon. What is that? Since this is a comma instead of a semicolon, this is not an independent clause, but it is a dependent clause. And then now we have a, for, for God made it evident to them, semicolon. This could be considered, because of the four, it could be considered a subordinate clause. But because of the semicolon, it could be considered a, an independent clause. Kind of like this four. So at this stage, what you could say, it appears that this is an independent clause, for God made it evident to them because you're not sure. Or you could say it appears that this is a dependent clause. Or you might say it could be either an independent dependent clause because of the four. And that would be an observation. If you say it conclusively, then you've interpreted. See the difference? See the distinction? So there you are. You have that's the first sentence. And now, uh, I've broken this down. Here's the first independent clause. Here's a dependent clause. And then we have some other stuff later on. We're looking at structural units here. The next structural unit within a clause are phrases. And your more common phrases are prepositional phrases. Can you identify the first prepositional phrase? No. This is this is more of an introductory word here. It's acting more as an introductory statement, introducing the sentence. Okay. The, of God is your first prepositional phrase. Of God in righteousness is a prepositional phrase, but we have from heaven another prepositional phrase. Of men, another prepositional phrase. About God, another prepositional phrase. To them, another prepositional phrase. Within them, prepositional phrases. See them? There they are in red. This is what you want to do. These are observations. So if you want to kind of isolate all of the prepositional phrases, now these are telling us, prepositional phrases by definition are modifiers. They're telling us something about something else. Talk, talking about some kind of wrath here. In this case, it's the wrath of God telling us something about this, what's being revealed. It's being revealed from heaven, etc. So they're modified. Are you seeing these relationships? That's what you're looking for. That's what you're trying to observe. So the, the, the second dependent clause that starts uh, verse 19 actually goes all the way back and modifies the first dependent clause. Right. You could state that as it appears, and that would be a valid observation. If you state it the way you stated it, you're interpreting. So the wrath of God is revealed because that which is known about God? You're probably correct, but what I'm separating out is an observation. In other words, at this stage you want to say, this appears to modify wrath, or, or the revelation of this wrath. Something along those lines. It appears that this is the case. So that, that, I was interpreting that. Yes. Yeah, that's the next stage. That's interpretation. Could there be an alternative? Yeah, it's potential that uh, sometimes when you have something modifying, something closer is the 
thing that is being modified. But probably the strongest case is what you concluded, which is an interpretation. But you can frame it as an observation at this stage. And then later you go further and make a conclusion, then it's an interpretation. Let's talk a little bit about translations, just so you have an idea of what you're dealing with. There's something of a spectrum of philosophy of translating. And what I mean by a spectrum, there's different philosophies. At one end of the spectrum is a more literal approach to interpreting. And when we say literal, the translator is attempting to stay as close to the Greek and or Hebrew in terms of word order or phrase order or sentence order as the original, stay as close to the original as possible. And you might say, well, why wouldn't you want to do that every time? Well, the result of this, if you get too literal, it becomes too choppy. And there's a point at which you can't follow word for word. In some cases, it wouldn't even make any sense. So you have to do a little bit of adjustment, but the tendency in this end of the spectrum is to stick as close as you can and still make sense. So a literal translation reads a little bit more choppy than something on the other end of the spectrum, which is dynamic equivalence. Now, I'm drawing another line here even beyond that, but the the solid block here are translations, and the dotted block is... Uh, represents uh, paraphrases. Okay? So the, the other extreme of the spectrum would be paraphrases. What's that last part of this? L? Living Bible. LB. Yeah, the Phillips translation, the Living Bible, are what we would call free translations or paraphrases. And a free translation and or a paraphrase... The translator is doing a little bit of interpreting for you. So is the amplified fit under free? Amplified would fit under free, yes. So there's a little bit of interpretation that's, or considerably more interpretation. There's interpretation in every stage, but there's obviously a, a break-off point where you have a deliberate attempt to do a, a significant amount of interpreting. That's the free end of the spectrum. Now, on the far end of the translations that are not paraphrases is what's called dynamic equivalence translation philosophy. And this approach, you attempt, rather than to go phrase by phrase and translate literally, you look at the complete sentence and try to capture the essence of what that sentence is trying to communicate, and then you translate accordingly. Does that make sense? So it will not stick to necessarily the close order of phrases and lines, but try to convey in the language, in this case English, the thought of the whole sentence as clearly and as accurately as possible. The advantage of dynamic equivalence is these are easy reading Bibles. They're easier than the more literal translated Bibles. The literal is also called the formally equivalent translation as opposed to dynamic equivalent. And what they mean by formal is more close to phrase-by-phrase equivalent to the original. So the examples, King James, New American Standard, are on this end of the spectrum, the literal. These also, and even RSV, which is a little bit less literal than King James, these are probably your best study Bibles. New King James, yeah, New King James should be up there as well. Where's the ESV? ESV... I'm not sure. I'm not sure some of these newer ones haven't kept up with that. So you have King James, New King James, RSV, NASB, literal. On the other end, the dynamic equivalents, NIV, New English Bible, 
Good News Bible. These are more readable. They read and they flow better and the English is better. But you do lose a little bit of the flavor of the original. I think it's interesting. Of course, you're familiar with Dr. Walker. Yes. Uh, I think he was involved in the NASB and the NIV in Psalms and Proverbs. Yes. Yeah, a dynamic equivalent is not a bad translation. You just need to understand what the philosophy is and what the goal is. The, the goal is readability here. And the attempt is not to lose anything from going from the original to the English. So this is not an inferior translation approach. It's just different. Well, I know that, uh, that Hosanna runs into that constantly because they're, yeah. you know, they're translating so many, so many languages. Yeah. Any translation into any language is going to have the same issues. Yeah, we're just talking since we use English. Does that give you a feel? Therefore, in order to probably better benefit from this course, I would recommend King James, New King James, RSV, or NASB as your study Bibles. Uh, I'm not saying that NIV is not a good Bible. In fact, you ought to use it to check your understanding of the text, and it's going to give you some insight as well. But you might go to it after you've studied the details in these other versions. Make sense? So those are translations. Now, let me give you some things that you want to look for on the broad scope. We're talking about these relationships. This kind of looks at things from the book level, the divisional level. What kinds of things do you look for at the observation stage to try to identify divisions or subdivisions? There's different structural patterns that authors will utilize. The first structural pattern we might describe as a biographical structure. And if we're talking about a biographical structure, the key pattern here is persons. In other words, the the material is structured around persons. Remember what we said about the book of Genesis? Remember we saw two divisions? And you remember I said that the second division seems to be organized around these four major personages. So the second half, uh, second division of the book of Genesis has a biographical structural pattern. See that? Remember that? You might even say, and commentators have observed that in the book of Acts, you might divide Acts into two parts by a biographical pattern. Who are the two major apostles in the book of Acts? Peter and Paul. Now you have the other apostles where they play a role as well, but Peter stands out prominent. And then the second half of the book, Paul is prominent. So the first 12 chapters revolve around Peter and the other apostles, but primarily Peter, and then from chapter 13 to the end of the book, the focus is the Apostle Paul. Paul is introduced to us in chapter 9, but he really doesn't come into play in terms of his ministry till chapter 13, and then the rest of it is Paul, Pauline. So you could divide the book of Acts into two divisions if you if you observe this biographical structure. Now, other commentators see another structural pattern in the book of Acts, so you you can choose one or the other. But do you see that? you see what we mean by a structural pattern? In other words, you're trying to figure out how is the author putting his material together. And we're looking at it on a big scale now. Although, even smaller scales, sometimes you might see some of these patterns as well. So it's not limited to the division level. So you have a biographical structure. A lot of the historical narrative books have a historical structural pattern. In in other words, the driver there are major events. Major events. Or key events. That's a historical structure. The book of Joshua 
you have something uh kind of an introductory portion you have the wars or the campaigns three major campaigns and then you have the dividing up of the land so you have those are the main elements of the book of Joshua these are historical events or series of events that you can tie together the first division of the book of Genesis is predominantly a historical event-driven division. So the book of Genesis has a historical division and then it has a biographical division. So Moses uses two structural patterns in the book of Genesis. Books like Numbers, books like First uh, and Second Samuel would primarily have a historical framework or pattern. Chronological structural patterns. Remember I gave you an example of that one. Remember the book that we use that as an example? Ezekiel. Remember Ezekiel? Seems to have that recurring chronological pattern. Key time elements. First and second kings seems to be divided into periods of time related to certain kings. And one of the emphasis in those books is in the time of a certain king, and usually it ties it to another event, so you have a time frame, chronological. And you might say maybe a combination of chronological and historical structural pattern for first and second kings. Geographical, obviously locations or places are the keys there. You could divide the book of Exodus into three divisions. And you can probably even off the top of your head identify the three specific locations that you could divide the book of Exodus into. You may not have the chapters at the top of your head, but you can probably identify the three locations. Where are they at at the first part of the book? Egypt. Where are they at in the middle of the book? Wilderness. Where are they at at the end of the book? Nope. They're in Egypt. They're in the wilderness. Where do they end up in the book? Where do they spend a lot of time at the end of the book? Where did they receive the law? <laughs> Sinai. Sinai. Yeah. Yeah, geographical places. Yeah. 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 Lot, in fact, the bulk of the book, first 14 chapters in Egypt. And then kind of the transition is the Exodus where they they leave. And then they're in the wilderness, chapter 15 through 18. And then half the book, more than half the book, they're at Sinai, chapter 19 to chapter 40. At Sinai or the foot of the mountain there. Oh, I just never distinguished between Sinai and wilderness. It's, yeah, but... I see what you're... Yeah. Location. Yeah, the, the wilderness is kind of a transition to Sinai. It's Egypt and Sinai. Those are kind of the two main ideas of the book of Exodus. In other words, what happens in Egypt? Exodus. The whole rest of the Bible is around all, all Jewish theology surrounds around their redemption or deliverance from Egypt. But the other important element, the wilderness is a transition to Sinai, where they receive their constitution or law. But the point I'm making here, the structural pattern is, again, Moses structures his material in terms of these three major locations, places. Got it? Okay, another structural pattern is ideas, or we call that ideological ideas. These are books like what? Romans. Ephesians, key ideas, or in in the case more specifically, theology. You might even identify this as theological, a theological structural pattern, or ideological, kind of broader. Theological is more specific. And kind of a unique book is one that is represented by, or an illustration of a problematic pattern. Where problems or issues are the key dividers. First Corinthians, the whole book. Problem after problem after problem after problem that Paul deals with. The book of First Corinthians. 
Well, I, I'm trying to think about like Joshua. I mean, it's, it's partly history, but it's but it's also in a way it's kind of theological too. Well, all history is theological. All biblical history is theological. Yeah. Jeremiah. Did I say Joshua? You said Joshua. I'm Jeremiah. Okay, Jeremiah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's predominantly theological. Yeah. So you would probably put it in the ideological structure. Okay? So these are the observations that you want to make on that bigger scale. In other words, look for these kinds of things. Now, these come into play sometimes in individual passages as well, but particularly on the large scale. So when you're doing a book study, these are other things that you want to utilize to find divisions. Go ahead. Is it safe to say that these categories are remarked by like the literary genres and forms in certain in many contexts? Sometimes, but not always. Yeah, not always. Yeah. Another thing that I don't have a slide here for, but some books almost give you an outline to their material. The examples that come to mind is Acts one eight. Some use it to show a historical and or geographical pattern. How does Acts 1.8 read? And how does it probably outline the book of Acts? Does anybody, somebody read Acts 1.8. You will receive power the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay, and Judea and Samaria are linked together. The first part of the book of Acts is in Jerusalem. That runs through, what, uh, chapter 8, I believe. And then beginning in chapter 9, somewhere in there, to chapter 12, primarily Judea and Samaria. And then chapter 13, the uttermost ends of the earth, or uttermost parts of the earth, which would be a geographical layout. So those are the two more common ways of dividing the book of Acts. And the book of Acts in verse 8 may incline you towards that geographical pattern. Somebody look up uh, Revelation 1.19. Jesus may give you an outline of the book of Revelation in that verse. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen. And this is Jesus speaking to John. And the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. Okay, you see three divisions there? Write the things that you have seen in the past. What has John just seen? The context is in chapter 1, so it deals with all of chapter 1, the vision that he saw of Jesus Christ. In fact, that vision basically is the foundation to the rest of the book, the vision of the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's the Jesus that's going to return. So write the things that you have seen, past tense, the things which are things that pertain to what? Present tense, in other words, the church age that exists here and now. So that refers to chapters 2 and 3, the church exists here and now, present tense, still existing. And then we have the third division, the things that will take place after these things. After the things, probably referring back to the church, or the church age. And beginning in chapter 4, Everything in chapter 4 to the end of the book is eschatological. In other words, future after the church age. Simple division of the book of Revelation. Seems to come right out of the book itself. That seems to be a chronological structural pattern. Okay? We have a couple of minutes here. Let me just introduce an area that we'll spend a lot of time next week, we'll talk about literary devices. These literary devices, authors utilize them to organize their material. And I'll give you a whole series of them. Some of them you can observe applying at the divisional level, and some of them apply even within a sentence. 
So you have the full spectrum, and authors can use them in in any area of literary structure. We call them literary devices. And these are things that we use today. These are things that authors use in our culture today. And sometimes we use them in communicating to one another, even verbally. We use some of these literary devices. In fact, potentially we can use all of them. But all of them that we will go through are definitely found in in Scripture. And I'll give you some examples of many of them. And the list is not exhaustive. I'm going to give you kind of the, the main ones that occur over and over and over, but there's others as well. A literary device that we call comparison, where one thing is compared to something else. This is probably the most common literary device that Scripture uses or writers of Scripture use. And we do this as well. We try to explain something that is more abstract or difficult to understand by comparing it to something that is familiar. So the use of comparison is very, very common in Scripture. And you could think of a hundred examples. A lot of the the imagery in the Psalms uses uh, comparison. In fact, we'll talk about the Psalms later on and we'll talk about the different kinds of parallelism. The most common is the one that's related to comparison where one thing is compared to another. Just an example, at the paragraph level, in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21, throughout that, through the end of the chapter, I think verse 33, Paul is describing the relationship of a man and a wife, the husband and wife relationship, to the relationship of Christ and the church. In fact, it's interesting how he concludes it. The way he concludes it, it's almost like He's using the marriage relationship to illustrate the church. <laughs> In other words, a husband is to love his wife as Christ has loved the church. And a wife is to submit to the authority of the husband as the church is supposed to submit to to Christ. So you have comparison throughout, and, and comparison runs throughout that whole, whole paragraph. In Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10, Christ is compared to a high priest. And the writer goes into some detail in expounding all of the characteristics of the high priest in the Old Testament. And he's making the comparison that Jesus has a ministry of high priest presently from from the heavens. And he's the greater high priest. In fact, in Hebrews, Christ is superior in every way. But comparison is made there. In Romans 5, verses 12 through the end of the chapter, the work of Christ in saving mankind is in comparison to the work of Adam. In fact, Christ is called the second Adam. We have the first Adam described and the actions of the first Adam. And we have a second Adam described and we have the actions of that second Adam. And just to expand that a little bit, Just a few things, first Adam, second Adam, the first Adam, the sin of one plunged all of humanity into sin. And then the comparison is that the grace effected by one, the second Adam, made available the solution to the problem that was effected by the first Adam. And these are just kind of the highlights on this slide here. So the actions of one are compared, in, in, in the negative sense, are compared with the positive actions of another one. So one plunged humanity into sin. One offered the solution to the problem of sin. The many died as a result of the sin of one, and the grace of the one abounds to the many. So you have comparison here. So that's number one. Number two is contrast. And I think you're familiar with this. This is the antithesis of comparison. This is the association of opposites or dissimilar things. 
And I mentioned, just like in comparison, in the book of Psalms, you have poetic lines, one line similar to another, that's synonymous, that's comparison. But you also, in the Psalms, you have antithetical parallelism, where one line is the antithesis or the opposite of the other. But it's not just poetry. You can do this with any number of types of literature. You can introduce a contrast. And another example from Romans 5, not only do we have comparison, but we have contrast. And let me highlight the contrasts in uh, Romans 5. In Romans 5, we have the sin, which is a negative idea of Adam, in contrast to the grace of the Lord Jesus, or the second Adam. Secondly, we have the death of all in contrast to the abounding grace of the many. So you have comparison and contrast kind of working together in in the Romans 5 passage. You have one transgression, and we have one free gift of grace offered. Those are contrasts. Thirdly, you have condemnation of those under sin and those that have transgressed. Not only do they die, but you have ultimate condemnation. You have judgment and condemnation from the first Adam. And from the second Adam, you have justification. That's what that grace is all about, justification. And in the latter verses there, he uses both of those words, condemnation and justification in the Romans 5 passage. Towards the end, about verse 20 or so, 19-20, we have death reigning. In other words, all humanity is affected because there's like a kingdom of death. There's a reign. And those that receive the justification, the free gift of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, they can reign in grace in life. So you have reigning in death and reigning in life. You have the disobedience, this is also in those latter verses, of the first Adam producing the results of condemnation. Then you have the obedience of the second Adam resulting in eternal life. So you even include below this eternal death and eternal life. Eternal life is used in the context. So that's contrast. Another example would be Galatians 5, in verse 21, you have the works of the flesh, and Paul gives a list of them. And then what does he follow the list of the deeds of the flesh? With the fruit of the Spirit, and he gives another list. So we have contrast that Paul introduces there. And obviously the encouragement is to allow the Spirit to produce the fruit of the Spirit. So he uses contrast to bring out that idea. To show what we are in the flesh and what we can be in the Spirit. The two are contrasted. In Romans 4, when Paul is developing the idea of justification by faith, by faith alone, He contrasts that with an attempt to be justified by works, or works do not justify. So we have contrast working there. So this is real common. You see contrast all over Scripture. And like I said, these literary devices, you can have paragraphs in contrast, you can have whole sections in contrast, or you can have within paragraphs, you can have even within sentences, contrast and comparison. And the the same could be said for several of the other literary devices as well. Another very common literary device is the use of repetition. In other words, using the same terms or same phrases over and over and over. What this often does is it uh, has the effect of reinforcing an idea. In other words, bringing an idea home such that uh, you hear it over and over and over. The repetition produces hopefully a memory and allows the concept to be conveyed to the reader. 
And there's lots of examples of this. Hebrews 11, we have a list of the heroes of faith, and virtually every one of them are introduced by a little phrase in the English, by faith, Abel brought a proper sacrifice, or a better sacrifice. By faith, Enoch, etc., etc. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham, and we have several things listed for Abraham. Even Sarah, by faith, we have in the, in the passage, and he goes through the, the heroes of, of faith. So you have the recurring idea. So there's no doubt what he's trying to develop in all of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. He's trying to convey the idea of faith. And in that context, this is the major thing that he's attempting to get the Hebrew believers to respond after he's laid out doctrine, now he wants them to respond in faith. So he gives them vivid pictures over and over and over. And he uses the little phrase, so it's not missed, by faith all of these actions took place. Since repetition. In Matthew 23, Jesus being the ultimate communicator, the greatest preacher, he didn't write, but what is recorded in writing is some of the best literature that you could read. And in Matthew chapter 23, what does he say? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So we have an entire phrase that's repeated over and over and over. And then he gives examples of their hypocrisy. So he pronounces a woe upon basically Jewish leaders, scribes and Pharisees. And then he shows their hypocrisy. And he goes through a long list over and over. And I think the point is vividly made with with repetition. We have the same device in the Old Testament as well. In Deuteronomy 5, chapter 5 through chapter 11, you have the little phrase, the Lord your God. And then usually we have a description of what he did or what he said to the children of Israel emphasizing the authority of what Moses is communicating in the book of Deuteronomy. So it's over and over and over, and by the time you get to the end, you realize God did magnificent things for us, and we are to remember those things that God did in order to motivate us to live differently here and now, and also to prepare them to enter into the land. Based on the Lord your God, and what the Lord did in the past. So that's repetition.